Today on Not Sam Wrestling, we're coming off of Crown Jewel, SmackDown, Dynamite, War Ready, and Bound for Glory. All the drama in the world started by a simple WWE title exchange. And speaking of drama, I couldn't stay out of it. Eric Bischoff is on the show today. This is Not Sam Wrestling. Introducing your host from New York, here is Sam Roberts. Boy, oh boy, I'm going to try to fit it all in today. Welcome to the show. Welcome to Not Sam Wrestling. Busy Mondays as always. I hope it's a good one for everybody. I hope we're starting off a great week for you, unless you listen to this at the end of the week, in which case, I hope it was a great week for you. Um, It was a great weekend, basically starting on Thursday. You know, we end up, There's so much wrestling to cover. Thank God we have the additional podcast that we do every Thursday over at patreon.com slash notsamwrestling. And we did jump on this week on Patreon for the Not Sam Shells immediately after Crown Jewel to kind of give the thoughts coming right off of that show. But we'll get into it. Crown Jewel. I mean, basically, it's been nonstop wrestling from Crown Jewel on. We had a break on Wednesday. And then everything after that, it's just been wrestling, 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 wrestling. And of course, Eric Bischoff on the show today as well. And we'll get to that. But let's start. Let's go chronologically, right? Let's start with Crown Jewel on uh, on Thursday. I think uh, all in all, regardless of or not regardless of, I should say, but despite how anyone may feel about the show in general, I think when you look at Crown Jewel as a show, as a WWE show, as a WWE pay-per-view, I can't imagine not being completely satisfied by it. I can't imagine not thinking to yourself, man, that was a great show. You know, there was uh, these, when when they go to Saudi Arabia, they've been making super cards for these pay-per-views since the beginning. You know, this is where we saw Shawn Michaels come back to the ring. This is where we've seen The Undertaker come back for matches. This is where... This is where we've seen all, all kinds of dream matches. This is where The Fiend won the title. This is where Goldberg won the title. But all in all, generally speaking, and it's a little less every time, all in all, a lot of times, the shows that go international, because the Australia show felt this way too. Um, I remember when they did uh, Beast in the East, the show from Japan, it felt this way too. That was really just a WWE Network special, which is kind of what all pay-per-views are now. But... It feels like a super show being put on for an international audience, but not necessarily one that's essential to WWE canon. Theoretically, if pay-per-views are done well and right, then each pay-per-view should be essential to WWE canon. They should be chapter markers in the stories that we're telling with the competitors that are competing at these pay-per-views. And a lot of times when they've done Crown Jewel previously and Greatest Royal Rumble and things like that, while... We see the stars of the day, and while we see big matches, the results are not nearly as consequential for the story that we're getting as for the audience of the singular show, if that makes sense. I feel like it has become more and more of a traditional WWE pay-per-view with every trip over there, and I feel like this one, This crown jewel was, it was like a WrestleMania worthy card 
finally having WrestleMania worthy matches, starting with the Hell in a Cell match that was it's gonna it's got to go on the list of great Hell in a Cell matches of classic Hell in a Cell matches. The story that was told inside that cell between Edge and Seth Rollins was just perfect. The idea that these are two men that throughout the course of the match, I mean, and this is where Edge's appreciation, and I don't know if you guys saw the clip floating on Twitter. It's great. If you haven't seen it yet, go to Beth Phoenix's Twitter, go to Edge's Twitter account. I feel like every time I refresh my Twitter window, this video ended up getting kicked back to the top. Somebody found a video of Edge when he was like a mulleted 19-year-old. And he's uh, in the audience with another wrestler, uh, you know, in training at a talk show in Canada and Bret Hart is the guest with his Bret Hart jacket on and everything and Edge and his friend that he's with or colleague they ask how does one break into the business how does one get to WWE and Bret doesn't really have a great answer because you know he's he's a generation or two removed by that point from breaking in you know he, he came in via Calgary I mean Bret got in because Vince McMahon was going territory to territory ended up buying up Calgary and having Brett, the Anvil, Jim Neidhart, the Dynamite Kid, and Davey Boy Smith all come up to WWE because he was kind of uh, cherry-picking from some of the great territories across the United States and Canada. But in an era where there was no territory system as much and, and indie wrestling had not had the boom that it would have after that, it was a little bit difficult to kind of put your finger on how a WWE superstar comes to be. Uh, and and you could kind of see that in the way that there was a struggle of how do we find the right talent and, and systems and generations had to change for that to happen. But uh, it's so, like, it's so obvious. And I feel like in, as Edge has, has aged, I feel like as a performer, his appreciation for the Hart family and Brett specifically, has to, and I haven't talked to him about this, but has to have only multiplied because I feel like he is he is he is doing things in such a Brett the Hitman Hart way that it's almost tough to put your finger on. You know, it's it's not it's not so in your face. It's more the under the surface stuff. It's more kind of mentally the way he wraps his head around telling stories. It's in a way that I feel Bret Hart would do the same thing. I think Bret Hart, you know, Triple H is a similar way. I think that, that Triple H has, I think, been one of the people who publicly has really pushed forward that idea of stories and how they're told in the ring. You know, that wrestling is storytelling, and but ultimately it's not about vignettes and promos, that the, the best stories get told in the ring. And I think that Triple H always tries to tell stories with his big matches. I think that, you know, you could go as recently as the match with Batista or you could go back to the run. I feel like Triple H hit his stride right at the beginning of 2000 when he started working with Mick Foley. That Royal Rumble 2000 match, going into No Way Out, going into WrestleMania 2000, WrestleMania 16, and beyond. That's where Triple H really started to tell stories within matches and I feel like that's something that once you master there's a whole separate class for people like that Shawn Michaels is a guy like that that tells stories within these matches uh 
I feel like Bret Hart is the master of that. I feel like, and, and Bret Hart did it for years and years. I mean, going back to the very early 90s, going back to the beginning of his singles run in the WWE, I mean, you can go back to SummerSlam 91 and watch the match with Mr. Perfect and the story that is told between Bret Hart and Mr. Perfect within those ropes from bell to bell is incredible. It's what makes the match. It goes on to SummerSlam 92. It goes on. You could bring up WrestleMania 13. You could bring up WrestleMania 8 with the hot rod Roddy Piper. You could bring up Survivor Series 96 with Stone Cold Steve Austin. These are just the ones off the top of the head. You could bring up WrestleMania 10 first with Owen and then with Yoko. There, it's incredible what he does. And I feel like on this run that Edge is on now, that Edge has come back to WWE with the goal of making every single match count to the highest possible degree and making every single match an opportunity to tell a story from bell to bell. And I feel like that goal was very much accomplished in the cell. You watched two superstars that wanted to win a match at the beginning of the match. And by the end, you were witnessing two superstars that simply wanted to end each other. It stopped, the story stopped being about the match and started being about two guys that just wanted to destroy the other one. Not the career, not the chances of winning the match. I mean, full on, I want this person, not superstar, I want this human being ended. And that's what we witnessed as the match evolved. I thought that was so good. Getting the feel-good moment with Xavier Woods. And I saw, uh, I think it was on Kaz's Twitter account. Somebody uh, tweeted Kaz and said, uh, oh, it was, uh, I think it was Andy from Sports Illustrated that tweeted Kaz and said that one of Kaz's rules is that if you look and listen closely enough, WWE will always tell you what it's doing. And that's why he wasn't surprised that Xavier Woods won this tournament. But that's not true, okay? Like, the idea that that you are not surprised that Xavier Woods won the King of the Ring tournament, no. You're not surprised that Xavier Woods should have won the King of the Ring tournament. But I can't tell you how many times there have been moments where it's been like the carrots dangled. And then, boom, the hammer comes down. The fishing line gets cut. We ain't getting that carrot. A big shark jumps out of the water and bites it before we get the chance to because there's a goal to make us want the carrot even more. So at no point was I bold enough, as much as I wanted Xavier Woods to have that moment, at no point was I bold enough to sit there and say, well, clearly he's going to have that moment because I've seen it happen before. I watched it happen on Monday Night Raw. I mean, if ever there was a time for somebody to have a moment, if ever there was a time for somebody to walk into uh, uh, Crown Jewel with uh, with an extra uh, bit of, of oomph in her step, I absolutely thought after a 20-minute war with Charlotte Flair that Monday was Bianca Belair's night, that as much as we thought we were going to get a title switch happening on SmackDown, that... Right before on the Monday Night Raw, before dr Monday Night Raw draft rules went into effect, I really thought Bianca Belair was going to win the Raw Women's Championship from Charlotte before Charlotte goes to SmackDown. And why did I think that? Because she should have. But it didn't happen because sometimes it doesn't happen. We can't take these things for granted in WWE or anyplace else. Saw the same thing happened on Bound for Glory. 
The thing that should have happened that we all wanted to happen happened for a second and then Moose ruined it. Like this is just what happens in wrestling. This is a wrestling psychology that promotions have used from, from the dawn of time. How are we going to get people to buy tickets? Sometimes it's going to be make them happy and they're going to come back to get happy again. Other times it's going to be make them upset and they're going to come back because now they want to feel happy because they're so sad. What, what's the strategy? Let's roll the dice and find out if it works. And I'll get into the Charlotte Flair thing uh, in a little bit. I thought that it was Goldberg's best match since he became a part-timer. I, it was Goldberg's best match in 15 years. It was Goldberg's best match of this era by a mile. It was like, this is why Goldberg comes back. The story going into it was very, very good. The match was believable. When Goldberg actually hit that spear off the off the ramp, I couldn't believe it. Bobby Lashley, I think, was tremendous, and I don't think long-term will be hurt at all by the loss. I don't know what's going on with the Hurt business. Poor Sheltie and Cedric. I don't know. Uh, I don't know how they come out of this looking good, but I think Lashley is good, and, and Goldberg had the match of, of... This is the match he's probably been waiting to have since he left full-time active competition. So I was happy to see it. And then, uh, I mean, the main event... <laughs> And again, we went into way more detail on all the matches on the Patreon podcast, but like, talk about stories being told in the ring. How about just stories being told with faces? How about Paul Heyman walking around that ring expressionless the entire time? How about Brock Lesnar, who some people think, I think people are waking up to it now. Brock Lesnar's the best wrestler in the world. He's so good at professional wrestling. Brock Lesnar is somebody that wrestling students should be watching. Brock Lesnar is the one that should be doing these classes. People, kids who want to get into wrestling should be watching Brock Lesnar tapes. Because everything that Brock Lesnar does is believable. This is why people pay big money to have Brock Lesnar wrestle on their shows. This is why people pay for pay-per-views, pay for network subscriptions, and pay for tickets when Brock Lesnar is on the show. Because whether they say they love him, whether they say they hate him, whether they're happy with his schedule, whether they're so furious with the fact that he's not on every single pay-per-view, whether they're so furious with the fact that he takes the WWE Championship and he goes back to his farm, whether they're just furious with him for leaving for a year and a half and then just showing up again. The minute he steps into that ring, every single thing that Brock Lesnar sells, we buy. Everything that Brock Lesnar sells, we buy. Everything. How about the fact that he took one step back into a stadium, one step at SummerSlam, and it wasn't the ponytail, although it was a great addition. And it wasn't that well-groomed beard, although it was a great addition. It was his face. Immediately, we I knew. Immediately, you knew he was a baby face. And if you pay attention, how happy are people to cheer for that man? How, between Roman Reigns telling the most compelling story that WWE has had in years, and Brock Lesnar being the performer of a lifetime. It's finally peanut butter and jelly. It was oil and water for years. Two WrestleManias, a SummerSlam, something else, a Hell in a Cell maybe? I don't know. 
Just a whole bunch of, uh, Brock Lesnar and Roman Reigns. I mean, the first time these guys met, you know what the world said? Thank God Seth Rollins interrupted that match. The second time these guys met in a WrestleMania main event, the whole they got booed the whole match. Now, because of the story Roman Reigns is telling and because of the performer that Brock Lesnar is, it's not a fresh coat of paint on this house. The house has been demolished and a new one has been built in its place. And we tore down a shack and built a goddamn mansion of wrestling. It's incredible to watch. Paul Heyman walking around. We don't know whose side he's on. He throws the belt in. You know what to do with this. Er, championship. And go, and we don't know who he threw it to. How about the end of that show? How about Paul Heyman looking like a dead man? Looking like a dead man walking. Paul Heyman looking like a guy who knew that his goose was cooked. But here's the important part. He knew that his goose was cooked. And we don't know why still. We are watching. We are watching a man's face. Knowing his goose is cooked. But we aren't sure why. We know this guy's in trouble. But after weeks, a month and a half, after six weeks, we don't know why. It's beautiful. It's brilliant. Then you got Brock Lesnar. Who knows exactly what happened? And we don't know if he blames Paul Heyman. We don't know if he's mad at Roman Reigns. We don't know exactly what he's mad at. We just know that this beast has been taken off of his leash. It's a different look on the face of Brock Lesnar. Brock Lesnar was looking down that aisle as if to say, motherfucker, this ain't done. And then the look on the face of Roman Reigns and the Usos, because the Usos played a very valuable part of the end of that show. The look on the face of Roman Reigns and the Usos as they looked not at Brock Lesnar, but at Paul Heyman. The three of them gave a look as if to not only say, you have never seen a trifecta more on the same page. At one point there was doubt. Today there is none. Roman Reigns, Jimmy, and Jay Uso are one single unit. And they all looked at Paul Heyman as if to say, I dare you not to be on our side. We don't need you. You can't betray us because we don't need you. So I dare you to try because we'll stop you just like we stopped him. All of that was said through three faces. I'm going to put the Usos and Roman together as one face. Two camera shots, three faces. Gave that whole story. Loved it. Loved it so much. I'm going to get to SmackDown in a moment because that's the Charlotte and Becky Lynch drama. And we'll uh, we'll we'll save that for the end of this coverage. Um Dynamite, very, very interesting on a Saturday night. First of all, great show. I mean, you know, you're opening up with Dustin Rhodes versus Daniel Bryan. How is it not going to be a great show? But I think, you know, the story of the night, the story that has people going away is Cody Rhodes getting booed. And I I, I think, first question comes up, is Cody Rhodes getting booed or is Aleister Black getting cheered? I think it's both. Aleister Black's going to get cheered. There's no way to not like Aleister Black. Aleister Black might, I mean, sorry, Malachi Black. I know him, Tommy End, whatever you want to call him. He is not going to get booed. He's too cool. 
He's too awesome. I can't go to a show and ever boo that guy. Even if he says, please boo me, I'm a very bad guy. Sorry, not going to do it. You're too awesome and your tattoos look cool. Can't do it. Also, you kick super good. Can't boo you. Sorry, it's not going to happen. So that's part of it. But, you know, I think uh, Cody is at this spot where he's like uh, a very professional wrestler-y professional wrestler. Uh, and, and we've seen that before. We know what that is. Like, we know when you're doing pro wrestling tricks. And I think that that's what started it, for me anyway, that I was like, oh, he's doing pro wrestling tricks. And the audience, whether they knew it in or they just kind of inherently knew it, smartened up to it pretty quick. And we're like, okay, we've seen this before. We know what this is. I, a big part of me thinks that this is a big ruse. You know, I, I, I don't think that AEW does, if they do one thing well, it's listening to the audience. As I've said before, AEW is in a fan service space right now with the company. They're very aware of how the audience is reacting to everyone. And they have changed many things for the better based on feedback that they've gotten from their audience. Uh, I think there's a very high awareness of what's going on with Cody. I think at this point, they have to know that Cody's going to get booed when he comes out. And I think that, I think that, I think it, I personally believe that the booing will absolutely be woven into a storyline. Saturday, though, and, and, and the sort of evolution of the Cody character, and he says he's never going to turn heel, but I think that that's going to be one of those, like, I, you know, I, he may go, he may go John Cena, you know, the, 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 Boo cheers, but I think it's going to be one of those things where he is clearly a heel. He's just not calling himself a heel because he feels justified in what he's doing. But honestly, I mean, it's also part of the thing, right? Like Superman is kind of a heel. Like who likes Superman? That's kind of who Cody is modeling himself after. But like, really, if you if Malachi Black versus Cody Rhodes is almost Batman versus Superman. And who in their right mind is going to cheer for Superman over Batman? You mean... The handsome guy who got all his superpowers because he's an alien versus the dark, brooding billionaire who lost his parents, went through trauma, and so he learned many ninja skills and built an amazing Batcave. Who are you going to cheer for? And, you know, I, I, I don't think I'm the first person to have thought of this, so I think that they know what's going on over there. But on Saturday, right, you have Dynamite, but then at the same time, You've got Impact having a hell of a show. Impact putting on a hell of a pay-per-view. Impact is in a position where they are ready for the eyes. You know, that's the thing that happens. When, when the eyes come upon you, you've got to be ready for it. You've got to have a product that backs up those eyes. And we'll talk about that as we lead into the Eric Bischoff interview in a second. But I think Impact is there. You know, I think that uh, there are slight tweaks that I would make to the Impact product. I think that, that I wish that Impact would scale down, would not try to be so polished, right? That Impact would kind of embrace that they're in a smaller room, that the, 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 the budget that they put into it, it like, like they don't need to look like a mini mainstream product when they could just scale everything down and have it look a little bit more, I don't know, like rugged is the word, but gritty, a little grittier. You know, I think that I think that impact can look a little less polished and be more about impact. Make it make it mean something because I think they've got the roster to back that up. But now, you know, with some of the additions that they made at the pay-per-view, I think that they've got an entertainment quotient 
that is going to be added to what Impact's already got that's going to be a really good thing. I'm a big Josh Alexander fan. I think Josh Alexander is great. I think he's exactly what Impact needs as a top guy, somebody that is unique to that promotion, somebody that was not only built from that promotion, but stylistically is a top guy for Impact. You know, I love that like GCW has Nick Gage. Nick Gage is a top guy for GCW. Kenny Omega feels like a top guy for AEW. Guys like Roman Reigns and Bobby Lashley, those are WWE top guys. And Josh Alexander can be an impact top guy. It really helps to have brand identity when your top guy can be fully associated with your brand and not, you know, have somebody from the outside in, I think. And and when I say somebody from the outside, I don't just mean talent from a different roster because you could take talent from a different roster and they can change their style and all of a sudden they just fit your brand better. But I think Josh Alexander is that guy. And we saw Moose coming in and uh, uh, taking the title away from Josh Alexander right after he won it, stealing that feel-good moment from us. Uh, you know, that they're delaying gratification over at Impact. And I hope it pays off. Clearly, they'll go to a pay-per-view and have Josh Alexander versus Moose again. I think tonight or last night or Saturday night, whatever it was, was the night that a lot of fans wanted to, Josh Alexander to have his moment, specifically against Christian. So... We'll see if they can delay gratification successfully. I hope so. I'm a big Trey Miguel fan. I think Trey Miguel is great. I think he won the X Division Championship, but I, I'm a big, I, I think he's awesome. I think he's a big, uh, big get, big have for Impact Wrestling. I know he's been there forever, but I don't mean get like they just got him, but he's just a big, uh, uh, a very important member to their roster. I'm a big fan of his hilarious, awesome, seeing the demon show up, Dale Torborg in the demon gimmick from WCW in their battle royal. That would, I mean, it's just fun. And speaking of fun, how do you not root for the success? I'm going to have a tough time not calling them Billy Kay and Peyton Royce, but uh, Jess McKay and Cassie Lee, the inspiration. How do you not root for the success of those two? The first ever team to win both the WWE Women's Tag Team Championship and the Impact Women's Tag Team Championship. They won that title in their debut outing for Impact uh, at Bound for Glory. Seeing them again together, putting their hands, out, their fists on their hips, being the inspiration, I guess it were. The double I inspiration. I loved it. I was so happy to see him back. Um, and again, that's just one of those things. Like I still, to this day, I cannot, that's one of the real ones that I cannot wrap my head around why they wouldn't be on any roster, why WWE or anybody else wouldn't have them. But uh, it's crazy to me. But I think they're going to be a real asset to Impact Wrestling. And then at the same time, all this stuff is going on. GCW is doing War Ready. GCW does War Ready. Speaking of people that are doing great, like Josh Alexander and Trey Miguel are awesome in Impact. I'm loving what Alex Zane is doing in GCW. Aside from, you know, the obvious ones that I've talked about and had on the podcast, quite frankly, aside from, you know, the Nick Gages and the Effies and the, those people of the world, the Alley Cats, Catches, Alley Catches. Um, I think Alex Zane is doing amazing. I think Chris Dickinson is doing amazing over there. Chris Dickinson has been doing amazing stuff for a long time, though. Um, Briscoe is coming in and winning the GCW Tag Team Championship. That's a big deal. Ring of Honor was covering it. Uh... And this is what, I mean, talk about a refresh for the Briscoes. Talk about reminding people who you are. It's just awesome. 
Psycho Clown being on the show versus Effie, that was great. And then the main event, Nick Gage versus Minoru Suzuki. Oh, my God. How do you get better? I, some of the stuff I saw, a gotch pile driver through a door that was propped up on two chairs. Holy Toledo. Love what's going on over there. It's all so very exciting. It's just such a fun time, man. It's such a fun time. Uh, big drama this week was between Charlotte and Becky Lynch. Everybody talking about what went on on SmackDown in that closing segment. And uh, clearly things went awry because it was just awkward as hell. I think I felt the worst for Sasha Banks because she had to come in and try to pick up after everything that happened. You know, they're hyping this segment throughout the whole show. So what you're thinking is because a lot of people, I personally don't mind a title switch. If there is a way to avoid it, I think it should be taken. That's what I get annoyed by. I get annoyed. So let's talk at first because we could have avoided this whole thing by not having a title switch, by actually switching titles, not having a title switch segment. I, for the life of me, don't understand why you wouldn't have, I guess you want to do Becky Lynch versus Charlotte at Survivor Series in your champion versus champion match. But I thought it was very clear. What I would do is last week on Raw, in the main event of the show, I have Bianca Belair defeat Charlotte for the Raw Women's Championship. Now, Bianca Belair walks in to crown jewel as the Raw Women's Champion. However, she's not defending that title in the triple threat match. The triple threat match is Sasha Banks versus Bianca Belair versus Becky Lynch for the SmackDown Women's Championship. Throughout the course of that match, I have Sasha Banks pin Bianca Belair. Now Sasha Banks is the SmackDown Women's Champion. So, over on Raw, Bianca Belair's already drafted over there. She's already the Raw Women's Champion. And eventually, Becky Lynch can start going after her again, saying, I beat you twice. I'm going to beat you again. Now Becky Lynch is chasing Bianca Belair for the Raw Women's Championship, saying, I have beaten you before. That's my title. And Bianca Belair saying, you've never beaten me fair and square. It's all, as she said, it's always been something. It's always something. And guess what? You're not going to get something again because now I'm walking in with the champion's advantage. Meanwhile, on SmackDown, Charlotte can be sitting there going, hey, Sasha Banks, I got robbed for my title and you beat the woman that robbed me. So you know what I'm going to do? I'm going to beat you. And now Charlotte can go after Sasha Banks for the SmackDown Women's Championship without it being switched. And what are we doing for Survivor Series? For Survivor Series, we're getting a WrestleMania rematch that we were supposed to get at SummerSlam. But there's only one way it can happen now because Sasha Banks and Bianca Belair are split up because of the roster split. But because they each ended up with the titles, we can now get the match. Last time that we were promised at SummerSlam that we did not get. Before we get to Becky and Bianca, before we get to Charlotte and Sasha, we go into Survivor Series with Sasha Banks versus Bianca Belair. I, for the, maybe it makes too much sense. For the life of me, I've been thinking about it for a week and I have not come up with any conclusion as to why you wouldn't do that. 
And then I turn on SmackDown and they're hyping all show that there's going to be a title switch segment. And I go, okay, this is where I find out why that didn't happen. My option was one option. Here's where I find out why they went with the title switch instead. And what do I see? A title switch. Nothing. Literally nothing. I don't know what it was supposed to be, but it was just a title switch. And so I sit with you today still wondering, why not just go the other way? And what ends up happening at the title switch is Sonya Deville is standing in there awkward as hell saying, ladies, give me your titles. Becky Lynch reaches for Charlotte's title and she doesn't get it. And then she reaches again and it's almost, when you reach again and you don't get it again and Charlotte's like uncooperatively making sure she doesn't get it, it almost becomes kids fighting over something at a playground. Charlotte ends up dropping the title down on the mat, which is not the most respectful thing you can do to a title, especially right before you're giving it to somebody. Sonya Deville makes Charlotte pick it up like Charlotte's a student being reprimanded by a teacher. Charlotte gives the title to Sonya. Becky again tries to get the raw title from Sonya. She can't get the, she can't get it. Sonya won't let it go. She's like, no, just give me the SmackDown title. Becky goes, okay. So the thing that we've now watched big time Beck's the biggest star on the women's roster, try to do three times. She was not able to do successfully. And with no payoff, it just didn't happen. And instead of handing the SmackDown title over to, to Sonya Deville, Becky throws the SmackDown title at Charlotte and Charlotte drops that one too. And that one ends up on the floor. So now both titles have been on the floor as a result of this championship switch. Then Becky leaves and who comes out to try to salvage this thing but Sasha Banks which if Charlotte and Sasha Banks were going to have a rivalry over the SmackDown Women's Championship, I just told you how you could have gotten there without doing a title swap. But whatever. I'm not going to get, I mean, a lot. there's a lot of uh, uh, internet stories now about like, I mean, it's just snowballed. Like coming off of SmackDown, there were internet stories about how, uh, Charlotte didn't stick to the plan or something like that, or there were arguments, and then it started snowballing to women don't want to work with Charlotte, and Charlotte's difficult and creative and blah, blah, blah. I'm not even, I'm not, not only am I not going to theorize on what happened there, I'm not even going to comment on the other people that theorized what happened there, because you can already, like looking at it, you can already tell that we've drifted out of truth, Phil that maybe there were some elements of truth when the first report started coming out, but now that we're several days removed and it's snowballed, we've now telephoned ourselves into Purple Monkey Dishwasher. There's no way that the reports about the reports about the reports because he said to him, to him, to him are worth, like if you're hearing people discuss those reports without any firsthand knowledge, then you're, you're just listening to people chat. Which if you want to do, that's cool. I don't mind it. Chat about the gossip. I love gossip. But, you know, I'm not going to sit here one man with a microphone trying to make heads or tails out of internet reports from some guy on Twitter. Like, there are people that I trust. I trust Wade Keller. 
you know, I trust Wade Keller and his sources, Dave Meltzer and his sources. You know, there's there's people worth listening to, but also, are their sources reliable? I don't know. And that's where that's where we go to our guest this week, Eric Bischoff, because we do end up talking about Dave Meltzer with Eric Bischoff. Now, I want to say straight up, my opinion on the whole thing, this is coming off of, I thought Eric Bischoff would be a perfect guest on today's podcast, number one, because he was involved in internet drama this week, and I can't stay away. I just, I'm rubbernecking, baby. I am I am causing such a delay on the other side of the highway because I can't stop rubbernecking, but it feels so good to watch. That's a big reason. And number two, because we spent an entire hour last week talking about uh, uh, competition. And immediately I was like, who better to have on the show? If you didn't listen to last week's show, listen to the whole thing because I thought it was great. It was just me. But who better to have on to talk about competition in wrestling than Eric Bischoff? Who better to have on than to to talk about? I'm not going to sit here and talk about TV ratings. I don't know anything about demos. I don't know anything about ratings. I don't think a lot of people that talk about ratings know anything about ratings, but I certainly do not. So I'm not going to talk about it. I haven't studied them. I haven't been studying them. It's not my thing. I watch wrestling. I don't watch TV ratings. I think I don't even like numbers. I don't look at the numbers for this podcast, let alone for Monday Night Raw and AEW and SmackDown and whatever. I don't, none of it. I don't even like YouTube numbers. And those, it's just a number right there. I don't even look at the thumbs up, which, you know, if you click it on the things that I do, I would appreciate. But Eric Bischoff does. So I wanted to have Eric Bischoff on for those reasons. Now, I want to get a few things straight, although none of it will matter because I'm sure it'll all get ignored. Number one, I do not agree with Eric Bischoff. Eric Bischoff said earlier this week that he, or last week, that he thought that Tony Khan should, uh, Tony Khan and his guys should shut up and wrestle, that because they're not going head-to-head week-to-week with WWE, that they should not be, that Tony should not be talking about WWE as much as he, he is, and he should just be putting on a good show. I totally disagree. I think Tony Khan should talk as much shit as he wants. I think shit talking is a good thing. I think WWE should be making moves. I think AEW should be making moves. I think both WWE and AEW are putting on fairly stellar products right now. Some weeks better than others for both, but I think generally speaking, we're getting really good wrestling on television. So there is no reason to be afraid of getting eyes on you. The only reason not to talk shit is that you're not able to back it up. I think everybody should be talking shit because to me, everybody can back it up. So I don't agree with that. And anybody else that has that opinion, I personally, as a fan who watches wrestling and has been watching wrestling for over 35 years, my opinion, nobody should stop talking shit. No, ever about anything. Also, as far as he talks a lot about Dave Meltzer, as far as Dave Meltzer goes, I am a wrestling observer subscriber. I listen to his podcast. I follow him on Twitter. I am I I think that Dave Meltzer has contributed in a positive way to wrestling. I think the seriousness with which he covers it and the uh 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 amount that he's covered I think is 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 good for wrestling and I think that his opinion on on what's going on in wrestling is very very valid. I think that he has studied this stuff. I think that everybody's got their biases. I don't think that he's perfect uh and I don't read him as if he is uh the bible. But I'm also not, by any stretch of the imagination, an anti-Dave Meltzer guy. So now that that's all on the table, if you're not all caught up, 
83 Weeks is Eric Bischoff's podcast. Last week on 83 Weeks, there's a clip on YouTube. You can go to the minute and a half clip on Twitter, but there's like an 18-minute clip on YouTube where he breaks down his entire opinion on specifically the AEW-WWE Friday Night War, but even the bigger WWE-AEW competition. I'm sure he's going to talk about it this week on his podcast, 83 Weeks. You can get it on the ad-free network, adfreeshows.com. Uh, but I wanted to have him on, now that you're all caught up, to talk about all of it. So here he is this week on the podcast. The man himself. Controversy creates cash. Let's find out. Let's see if we can make some money, huh? It's Eric Bischoff. The Not Sam Wrestling Interview. It's been a while, too long as a matter of fact, but uh, back and better than ever. Eric Bischoff is here on Not Sam Wrestling. What's going on, man? How are you? I'm doing well. My wife and I are here in Minnesota visiting friends and family and uh, on our way to the Rolling Stones concert coming up this weekend. So life is good, brother. It sounds pretty good. And in, your, in, in the meantime, so between hanging out in Minnesota with, with deer heads behind you and going to see the Rolling Stones, you're just getting the internet wrestling community all fired up again. Well, good. Somebody has to. It's kind of boring, right? <laughs> well, yeah. So that's where I wanted to start because even before you were kind of involved in all this kind of talk and controversy, you were an opinion that I was curious about in general. Because when you talk about competition, especially competition with WWE and competition in professional wrestling, I mean, you're the you're the godfather of it, at least for my generation, right? And, and when you talk about cable TV, that's kind of your gig. Um, when you look at all this conversation happening and all of it happening all the time now, do you think to yourself, this is really good for business? Or do you think to yourself, this this can go wrong? It's both. Mm -hmm. In fairness, I think it's good in general because it represents interest and passion. Um but I think it has the potential of being bad, which is one of the reasons that I spoke up. And listen, you know, I'm going to go into a much more long form, probably three hour conversation about all of this on my next podcast. And I'm not saying that as a means to promote it, but it's, it's a complex conversation. And I, I think for the most part, I've been very supportive of AEW very supportive. Even in the comments that I made that got so much attention over the past week, I think that clip that we put out from our podcast has got like a million impressions and 200, over 200,000 views or whatever it is. And I've gotten an overwhelming amount of response to it. Um, and a lot of people agree with me. A lot of people don't. I like that. I, that's energy, man. That's passion. And the fact that there's so much passion and so much energy when it comes to sports entertainment or professional wrestling, whatever you want to call it, how can that be anything but good? Yeah. Yeah. No, I, I, I love the conversation obviously as a fan. I mean, the more, the better, but I think with you specifically, people were shocked at the idea of, of shut up and wrestle being your thing when like, I mean, as soon as Nitro started, not only was it giving away WWE's results, but I mean, I, I remember sitting there as a kid watching your show. Like, I can't believe if, if somebody asked me today, actually, my wife, I was talking about it with yesterday. I said, no, I really like Eric. Like, he's a good dude. Like, he's one of those guys that I actually like as a human being. 
But if I had said that to myself in 95, 96, I hated you because I was a WWE kid. I was a WWE guy. So you came in and declared yourself the enemy. Not only were you giving results away, but you were insulting Shawn Michaels super kick. Well, that deserved to be criticized. <laughs> Keep in mind, I spent a lot of time in martial arts. I was an instructor. I fought competitively as a black belt. I even had a couple of pro fights back before UFC became the UFC. And it was called, not it was called, but there was the PKA, the Professional Karate Association, that fought on ABC Wide World of Sports and CBS Sports Spectacular. I didn't fight on that. Well, I think I did fight on CBS Sports. But nonetheless, from a martial arts perspective, and that being something that you know I'm a little familiar with, certainly, um, that super kick deserved to be criticized. It had nothing to do with my feelings about Shawn Michaels or WWE. That was just a horseshit super kick. <laughs> so, so, so that wasn't even a shot across the bow. That wasn't Raw versus no, Nitro. That was, that, was, <laughs> that, was, that was just calling it right down the middle. It was when you lean, when all of your body weight is leaning away from your intended target. That ain't a kick. I mean, it's just, it, it, I don't know. If you watch a really good kicker, someone who will stand up straight, pick up that knee, and shoot that side kick out when they're almost perpendicular to the ground and their body weight is moving into the target, that's a side kick. That's a super kick. But <laughs> this that leaning way back where your head's about eight inches off the off the mat while you're kicking up in the air, you couldn't crack a fucking egg with that kick. <laughs> this, this is why I love you. Because you're still justifying the super kick comments, like you're yeah, still. <laughs> I was, I, I'm, I was criticizing it based on the technical merits or lack thereof. <laughs> so, what do you think when uh, the, the, there's Twitter and social media? I think has brought so many conversations to the forefront. I think that that I personally believe that wrestling fans were just as tribal back then as they are now. Except back then, it was kind of confined to message boards and wrestling fan bubbles and now i mean you've said it you talked about it in the clip like the internet wrestling community is kind of just the wrestling community i mean everybody's got a twitter account everybody's talking about it there are fans that are more hardcore than others but i think that the fact that these conversations are now happening on twitter and facebook and everybody is seeing these comments and i think that there are a lot of fans that wouldn't have gotten exposed to it that are now feeling like oh should i be picking a side here i think that that's the difference do you think that fans are different now or more tribal or that the conversation is more toxic now than it was then? No, I don't. I, I think fans are just, look, look, here's, it's really interesting to kind of go back in time and think about this and think about how the world has changed, you know, since we launched Nitro, which just to remind people listening to this was actually head to head, not like kind of, sort of, maybe in a way head to head. It was head-to-head -head competition, which, by the way, wasn't my idea. That was Ted Turner's idea. My job was to execute it as best I could, and I did, didn't I? <laughs> but <laughs> but when, if you, you, know, you go back, and it may be hard because I don't know how old you are, Sam, but you know, 25 years ago, WCW wasn't a new company. It had been around right. for, since 1989, right? So it was whatever, six or seven years old before I launched Nitro. And during that six, five, six, seven year period of time, whatever it was, WCW had developed a very bad relationship with its audience. 
WCW was kind of a lap in, in, in terms of brand value. It was in a hole. It was in a deficit when I launched Nitro. And one of the reasons that I took on the, I embraced the Eric's the enemy of WWE, you know, personality was because people were already kind of looking down their nose at us. All the people that were writing, all the dirt sheet writers, some of them whom are still around today, all predicted this was just like Turner's folly. There's no way Eric Bischoff's going to be able to do this. There's no way WCW is going to do that. And I understand that because historically, WCW, up until the time I launched Nitro, had failed far more often than it succeeded in, in the business, of the wrestling business. So I understand why it was that way, but I embraced it and thought, okay, well, we're digging ourselves out of a hole. We're not starting on a level playing field here. We're not a new company with a lot of, you know, with a fan base that's hopeful that we're going to be successful. The majority of the wrestling audience, for the most part, looked down their nose at us and looked up to WWE. So I had to reverse that psychology and I did it in a very aggressive way. But I think the, the, the from what I remember being on the receiving end of a lot of that, was that the tribal nature of the wrestling audience was very much the same. It was just really lopsided. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, no, I, that's, that's, that's the way I remember it too. I mean, I remember being, I would have been 11 or 12 years old. Randy Savage was my absolute favorite wrestler. And I remember being so pissed when he showed up on Saturday night. I mean, furious, feeling betrayed. And so, you know, when I see that now, I mean, I guess I was 12 years old, so I could kind of justify it being 12. I don't know that I could justify that kind of behavior in adults, but I see, I at least kind of see where it's coming from in your brain when you attach yourself to a brand like that uh, and expect the brand loyalty that you have to come back to you, which I think is unrealistic because brands are by nature companies, not emotional uh, things. Um, is that, is that when you started uh, your tumultuous relationships with dirt sheet writers, would you say? Because, you know, I mean, I'm a big fan of your podcast. I, I, for, I, I love that you're even in the wrestling conversation. Like, I don't take that for granted because for a long time you were out and you really had nothing to do with it. So the fact that you're this heavy back in, I enjoy. I also enjoy when people have opinions and I like I like fights. I like arguing. And so I like that you That's make why exist. Right? Yeah. Yeah. It's great. We, 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 we as viewers are living vicariously through the characters that we watch and appreciate on TV every week. That's why this shit works. That's the psychology. Is that you either, either want to be that person or you want to beat that person. It's one or the other. Right. If it's good. Now, if you don't care, if you're somewhere in the middle, then you're just going to be flipping through the channels and watching something else. So to that logic, we'll get back to the dirt sheet thing, but to that logic then, wouldn't what AEW and Tony Khan is doing make sense in a way in that that they're trying to create that super loyalty to this brand, that we are the victim of a bigger company bullying us, that we have to fight back, that we are better and we're going to show everybody that we're better and you know that we're better, but... We've got to show the world that we're better. Don't isn't that kind of what you think AEW is trying to build when they start taking these direct shots at WWE in a chicken shit kind of way? Yeah. Wow. Then then and this is I mean go back to what I said. Yeah. I was very very uh, respectful of Tony 
you know, I, I probably didn't come off that way to some people. But. Yeah, and, and to be fair, you did just describe his methods as chicken shit, like just now. Well, they are. I they got are. you. Okay. They are, and I'll and I'll explain why. Uh-huh. If you're going to compete, if you're going to say we have a better product, put it out there, head to head, prove it. Don't don't tie yourself into knots using using you know in, in a weekly data gymnastics event trying to prove a point when the, the here's here's how you t- put your product out there head to head who has the most viewers and let, and by the way I want to make this something really clear I'm not suggesting Tony should go head to head I think it would probably be a bad move for them right now but until they do. This is all just hyperbole. This is data nonsense. This is lying with statistics. This is no different. And I don't know a damn thing about baseball, but I think this analogy will probably ring true. You've got a AAA ball club somewhere, the Muskegon Mud Hens, and you've got a batter that's batting 600. Is that batter or the head of the Muskegon Mud Hens going to go out and compare that batter to somebody who's playing in the major leagues mm. and say that he's got a better batting average? It's two different games. It's two different situations. They're, and, and I get why they're doing it. It just makes them look juvenile. And, and again, I'm, be careful because I'm really supportive of AEW. I really want them to succeed. I want them to do better than WWE. I want WWE to have to fight to be better than AEW. I want that to be true. I have a lot of friends that work at AEW and people that, while I wouldn't consider them friends because we don't really have a relationship, good or bad, are people that I still have a lot of respect for. So this isn't a sour grapes thing with me. This is a reality thing with me. AEW probably still, they were the new kids on the block. There was nobody that didn't want AEW to succeed. They were the ultimate babyface underdogs. But the more they continue to use a AAA ball club batting average comparison to a major league player by comparing things that are not really fair to compare because they're not head-to-head competition, the more they do that, the less favorable the audience is going to feel about them, the less of a babyface position they're going to be in. And that equity, by the way, that that underdog status is some of the best consumer equity you can build. And to blow it by using these chicken shit data analytics where you're comparing apples and bricks because, you know, for, for and again, it's not Tony necessarily that's doing it, but well, yeah, he does sometimes, but where you see it the most often are guys, well, obviously Dave Meltzer and Brian Alvarez, the two sycophants that I don't think have any credibility outside of the little bubble of, of readership or, or online presence that they have. Not to suggest that they don't have a lot, they do, but those people will believe anything that comes out of Dave's mouth. They don't have the intellectual curiosity to kind of analyze it. They just go, oh, well, they've said it. It must be true. It's not true. When you're comparing uh, a demo, first of all, out of context, because nobody really understands what any of this really means ultimately when it comes down to a dollar sign or a line item on a spreadsheet, right? 
But when you take the approach of, well, AEW had a higher percentage of their audience in the 18 to 49 year old demo than WWE did on Monday night. When Monday night is, you have Monday night football. You're comparing WWE up against Monday Night Football to an AEW demo, which really doesn't make a fucking bit of difference at the end of the day, but it's a data point. And you're comparing the the, the AEW data point on a Wednesday night when there is no 18 to 49 competition, Not certainly not to the magnitude of Monday Night Football. It's a false comparison. It's right back to the AAA Muskegon Mudhen batting average theory. You're comparing apples and oranges, not even apples and oranges, because they're both food. They're both part of a food group. You're comparing apples to bricks. Yeah, it's it's not. And and that loses credibility over time. I'm seeing it. I'm you know, I I don't know how many responses I can't. I've I've been driving for the last two days, so I haven't really looked at my social media. But, you know, with close to a million impressions and 200 and some odd thousand views. I got a boatload of responses and the vast majority of them are supportive. Now I'm also realistic. I know that the people who follow me on social media follow me for a reason, right? And they're going to have a tendency to agree. Not all the time, on average, they have a tendency to agree with things that I say because they have a relationship with me or they wouldn't be following me on social media or they wouldn't be listening to my podcast, right? So I don't take that response and go, oh, see, it proves my point. 98.7% of the people that responded to this tweet, this social media post responded and agreed with me. So I'm absolutely right. I don't believe that either. You know, it's split mm-hmm. in reality, not on my social media feed. My 4,000 responses or whatever they have been, 5,000 um, that I looked at, the last time I looked at was the count, have all been, it's about time somebody said it. You don't want that. You don't want that. You know, you, you're the baby face, it's Tony. A, it, it's Be almost, a baby face. Be the underdog. Let the audience do the talking for you instead of you doing the talking. I used to tell that to Diamond Dale's page all the time. And I love Diamond Dallas Page, but he spent so much time trying to put himself over that nobody around him would be willing to do it. And the minute you stop putting yourself over and let everybody else do the work for you, things change. And that was my whole point. It's not that I don't want AEW to succeed. It's not, I don't have a dog in the hunt. I don't give two shits who wins. Ultimately, I want them both to win. I want the wrestling industry to win. I want the talent to win more than anything. I want the business to be vibrant and healthy. But in my opinion, for whatever it's worth, it's my perspective. I'm an old man. I'm not in the business, according to some of the people. <laughs> um, I'm, I'm yelling at the clouds, you know. <laughs> Look, I, I want them to win, but I, what I see is AEW unknowingly because they're inexperienced and, and Tony, in my opinion, is working a little too hard, seeking validation and trying to create a war when he's not willing to get in one. You know, I, I also, I, and maybe I'm putting on my therapist hat here, but this goes back to what we talked about at the beginning of the conversation with Shawn Michaels and the fact that you felt a way about that super kick because super kicks were near and dear to you because you knew what a real super kick was. You've been there and, and based on your own experience, it fed your opinion of this. Uh, you talked about taking over WCW and starting Nitro and how you had a brand that wrestling fans were looking down on. By the time you took over WCW, there was certainly, and I agree with you, there was a negative 
look at WCW, it wasn't, it, it, I mean, I guess theoretically it was the number two wrestling promotion, but by yeah. 10 miles, like it wasn't competition and people thought it was cheese ball stuff. Is there part of you, I, and, and you keep going back to the head to head thing, but I feel like where it's tugging at your heartstrings a little bit is you see a guy who's got a secondary promotion that people are feeling positive towards and it's almost like you know how valuable that is because you didn't have it and you're telling a guy not to blow it. Yeah. Thank you, doctor. That <laughs> I mean, I feel like I said that better than uh <laughs> I like the guy, but he's doing all this chicken shit stuff with his minor league baseball. <laughs> well, I, you know, I kinda, look, I can talk about this in a very intellectual way. Of course. Can, you know, but we're talking to wrestling fans here. Yeah. People need to understand. If you agree with me, if people agree with me, fantastic. If they don't agree with me, fantastic. It is not going to change my life one bit. Uh, perspective. And I, I share it. And, and part of me sharing that is trying to draw analogies to help people better understand. Because let's face it, not a lot of people that are listening to this or listening to my podcast or reading me on social media have any idea of how the television business really works or how wrestling, the business of the business of wrestling really works. They've never been there. All they know is what they read and what they hear. And I try to paint the picture as clearly as I can. Sometimes I use analogies that are less than flattering. And I don't think the minor league baseball analogy was necessarily less than flattering. I'm not saying that AEW is the Muskegon Mudhens, but I am trying to illustrate how ridiculous it is to compare data that is not anywhere, it's not even reasonably close in an analysis because the situations are so much different. So Dave Meltzer was talking about you and uh, uh, he said uh, he went over kind of everything that you did. And, you know, uh, he, his his the way he looks at the numbers is different from the way you look at the numbers. We'll put it this way. But uh, he also said, in a sense, it was a Bischoff attempt at a publicity con, uh, perhaps with the help of Conrad Thompson, which I don't know why he's dragging Conrad through the mud with you, uh, as he then put shut up and wrestle on a T-shirt and put it on sale. And it is true. You did coin that phrase. Now it's on a t-shirt. Here's two things. Number one, did you go in thinking like, okay, this is going to be good for marketing. Shut up and wrestle will be a thing. Or number two, is that something that you realized after you said it? Oh, this is sticking. Let me throw it on a t-shirt. No. And, and, and there's another example of why I've got, you know, such a bad taste in my mouth, especially about Dave Meltzer, not, not, Online newsletters in general, peripheral media, as I refer to them now, mm -hmm. in a much more sophisticated and elegant manner. But Dave's a dirt sheet, right? Dave spews shit he knows nothing about. And that comment, and including Conrad Thompson in it, was a perfect example. Mm -hmm. There was no con Here's the truth. Honest to God truth. Conrad was down in Florida on vacation, right? And... Paul Bromwell was going to sit in and host that podcast for me. I got up on a Saturday morning to record that podcast at 6.30 in the morning, not having a clue what we were going to do because it was a watch along. There was no reason for me to prep for the show. We're literally watching a show live and commenting about what we're seeing. So I, I didn't have to do any prep. 
by the time we by the time I sat down in front of my uh, my laptop or my computer to shoot to record that podcast, um, I had about two cups of coffee in me. I was a little foggy. Had no idea what I was going to say. None of that was scripted. None of it was prepared. None of it did I even. I didn't even know I was going to say it until the words were coming out of my mouth. I react to what I'm asked often. I don't come to a podcast with an agenda. It depends what the subject matter is and what I hear and what I'm being asked about. Um, some people like to prep and have all that stuff laid out. I don't. I like a real authentic, organic reaction to things, not something that I pre-prepared. So I had no idea I was going to say what I said until after I said it. I went, oh, God, I said that. The shut up and wrestle thing rolled out of off. I never thought of that before. It just happened. It was spontaneous. It just happened that a lot of people reacted to it and liked it. I had nothing to do with the T-shirt. It was not my idea to come up with a T-shirt, nor was it Conrad Thompson's idea. It was a reaction to the overwhelmingly positive response that that podcast got and my comments got on social media. And then we have a whole team of people over at freeshows.com that went, oh, that's a shirt. <laughs> and we put out a shirt. And we're selling them like crazy. So... <laughs> It happened, it, but it wasn't a con, you know, anything, anytime they see, that's the thing about that. He likes to, he, he's kind of a passive aggressive punk in that he tries to always frame and contextualize things in a way that is negative towards the people that he just doesn't like. Mm -hmm. And, and he, on the other side of that, he'll twist himself into a fucking pretzel trying to put over things that for whatever reason, probably because of proximity and somebody actually pays attention to him that he feels close to. That's Dave. He's just, he's just disingenuous. And, you know, he always likes to use the word con. If there's anybody that's conning anybody, it's the fact that Dave Meltzer has any inside information. That's, that's credible. Does he talk to people? Sure. Do any of those people have any credibility? No, but Dave doesn't care. He'll repeat that trash and then it ends up, on the internet and people think it's a fact it's not he's been proven so wrong so many times by so many people i can't believe anybody really pays attention to him but they do well yeah. this is Go ahead. this is what i was gonna uh, ask you about earlier in regards to him and and how that sort of uh contempt began because something crossed on my radar like this video just pops up on twitter every now and then and i saw it and i've forgotten about it and then i watched it again it's a wild ass promo from uh world war three in 1995, I think most people who probably listen to this know, or maybe they don't know, where where Hulk Hogan is with Sting and Macho Man, and they're on the stage, and like you know, it's it's kind of the promo. The 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 promo is supposed to be Hogan kind of taking off his black shirt, his black bandana, and he's getting rid of the dark side. He's back to red and yellow. He's back to Hulkamania. But then for the last part of the promo, he takes out what appears to be a copy of the Wrestling Observer and starts saying stuff like "Observe this," and he throws it in the trash. And it's one of these moments where I'm like, were they really so upset about Dave Meltzer that like they wanted to work it into a promo on a pay-per-view? Was that was that you? Was that something getting under under Hogan's skin? Was that what 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 was that? Uh, I don't think it was necessarily me. I would have been supportive of it, mm -hmm. uh, but it wasn't my idea necessarily. That was probably all Hulk. But it's that, look, Dave is a pimple on a hamster's ass, but unfortunately, pimples get infected and sometimes make things complicated. Dave is very bad for the business. That's another thing. That's my issue. Wow. Um, he, Dave thinks he's, you know, he, he's 
he's good for the business or people think Dave's good for the business. He's not, he's not. I, and, and long before I got into management, I saw the kind of problems that even back then before the internet, you know, dirt sheets were, were causing. And, and I'll give you an example. All right. A quick one. There used to be a guy that worked at TBS by the name of Jeff Carr. Jeff Carr was the program director at TBS. Okay. And when Ted brought, you know, wrestling and, and, and bought out Jim Crockett promotions out of bankruptcy and launched WCW on, on, on TBS, Jeff Carr was the only person in the building that was actually a wrestling fan. So Jeff Carr got the responsibility to kind of oversee WCW from the Turner Broadcasting point of view. Well, Jeff never left his house. Jeff had Jeff was a good guy, by the way. Nice guy. I liked him. No, no personal animus at all. Nothing like that. But he lived in a tiny little bubble. He was, I guess, a nerd, right? So people can under, try to understand the context here. But since Jeff Carr didn't have the personality, the desire, the confidence or anything else to really dig in and learn about the wrestling business, guess what he did? He read the dirt sheets. I was about to say read about it, yeah. So Jeff's influence on WCW during its, some of its most tumultuous and least successful periods of time were affected, sometimes greatly, sometimes a little bit, by Jeff Carr and his perception of the wrestling business based on Dave Meltzer's dirt sheet. I saw it, I, and I was a C-Squad announcer. I didn't really give a fuck. As long as my checks were in the mail, as long as I was doing the best job that I could do, that stuff was not It was not in my wheelhouse. I wasn't concerned with it. I was aware of it, but I wasn't concerned, of it, concerned with it. But I watched it. I watched what happened. So for people to think it's just okay to spew a bunch of nonsense that isn't true, kind of like Dave did when he suggested that Conrad and I did all this to create a T-shirt and, and, and created a con in order to sell a shirt. Completely false. Completely false. But it doesn't matter to Dave. Nobody told, nobody, Dave didn't bother to pick up the phone and ask, hey, why did you guys come up with that T-shirt? Because somebody would have told him. Right? Yeah. He could have called Conrad. He and Conrad are friends, I think. Yeah. You're going to call Conrad and say, hey, Conrad, did you guys really come up with that skit just to sell T-shirts? And Conrad would have told them the truth. Dave doesn't want to do that. And that's a perfect example of typically what Dave doesn't do. He just spews bullshit and everybody thinks it's true. Thinks it's true. I'll tell you for the record that I like Dave because I like hearing his analysis. I like hearing his historical perspective. I like that he comes from a place as somebody that's been watching wrestling for all these decades upon decades and takes wrestling seriously and, and he can put things, a lot of times in his opinion, into historical context. And, and I don't know, I, I like hearing his take and his analysis on things. I think maybe the problem comes up when people read his or anyone's stuff as if it's the Bible. As opposed to just an informed, I mean, because he is an expert as a consumer of wrestling. Could we at least say that? He, I mean, clearly, if anybody is an expert from the perspective of consuming and observing professional wrestling from that space, Dave fits the bill. I don't know. You know, first of all, and let me let me preface this. 
I often agree with a lot of Dave's opinion or analysis of wrestling, the product in the ring. I, I would more often agree with Dave's opinion, subjective opinion, because that's what it is. It's subjective opinion. Is he an expert subjective opinionist? <laughs> I'll give you that. I'll buy that. There's a T-shirt. See? <laughs> yeah, there you, it is. Into, you conned me into coming up with a T-shirt. <laughs> and it's going to say it. And maybe he's in business with Sam Roberts on this, but they've got another T-shirt. Well, uh, <laughs> let me. Uh, I'll, I'll wrap this up quick. Yeah, yeah, yeah. My issue isn't with Dave's opinion about the product, certainly not with his historical perspective. My issue is when he puts things out there as fact, when indeed they're nothing but opinion mm. and doesn't identify sources. And now I'm not saying name names, but, you know, I, what was I read the other day? You know, Vince's react backstage reaction. First of all, you people that are putting this crap out there and you use backstage report, you're not backstage, right? <laughs> Unless you're backstage, don't say it's a backstage report. It's a lie. It's misleading. It's a con. That's a con. You're making, you're giving, you're creating confidence. You're, you're trying to establish confidence in yourself by people into believing something that isn't true. You weren't backstage. Now, granted, it's tough to get backstage, as you know, <laughs> yeah. right? But if you're going to say, we talked to two individuals who confided this information to us, identify it as two individuals who confided an opinion to you or an observation to you. Don't come out and say, Mr. McMahon, visibly upset. Didn't show it in front of the entire crowd. But, but you know, I mean, don't paint a picture that's just your, a figment of your imagination. It's fucking artwork. It's not fact. It's not even subjective opinion. I, there's a lot of things that I agree with when, when I hear some of the things that Dave has written. I, and I acknowledge it on my podcast. When it comes to what he likes in wrestling and what I like in wrestling, we don't agree on everything. But or, or I don't have the same opinion as he does. It's not a matter of agreeing or disagreeing. If you like red and I like blue, it doesn't mean you're wrong for liking red or I'm wrong for liking blue. You just like two different things. That's okay. I got no issues with that. But it's it's the intentional falsifying of information, cloaking it as fact when indeed it's a rumor or it's a subjective opinion. That's my issue. And, and I will say that as somebody who has read a ton of newsletters and as somebody who has been lucky enough to be backstage quite a bit, there is a stark difference between the world that's painted in a newsletter and a world that exists in reality backstage. Um, I know that you have to go, but I do... No, that's all right. I'm having fun with you. So okay, good. Good. Because I do want to bring up... I mean, the one thing that I remember when we talk about competing and what you guys at WCW did, and I don't remember timeline-wise if this is... At the very beginning of Nitro, it was probably towards the beginning of Nitro. I don't think you were doing this before Nitro. But I do remember that when WWE started bringing guys in, like after Hogan and Macho came over to WCW and it was like when Steve Austin and Vader and some of those other guys ended up, you know, making the the journey to Stanford, that you guys started running bumpers before every commercial break. And it would say WCW where the big boys play. And you would never say anything and you would never be direct about it. But if you watch them, it was every single time. 
it was a now WWE guy getting beaten up by a now WCW guy. It was Mick Foley getting beaten up by somebody. It was Ric Flair beating up Vader. It was always, always a current WWE guy who used to be a WCW guy getting beaten up. Do you remember making those? I remember the campaign. Yeah. It was something that uh, Sharon Sadello, who was the head of marketing at the time, commissioned uh, a, a market research company uh, to come up with a branding statement um, that we could use in the show. And that's where that came from. That wasn't my idea. or, or and, and I liked it, by the way, because it had kind of a double entendre to it to a degree. Um, but, yeah, I do remember, of course. But it wasn't your idea to have, like... The, not only for it to be where the big boys play, but for that to be the theme, that it's the, our guys beating up your guys before we go to break every time. I don't think that was the intent. That might have been, it might have looked that way, and it might have been that way. Yeah. Certainly, I don't know. I, I mean, I'd have to go back and look, but I don't think, I know I wasn't so invested with where the big boys play mm -hmm. that I would have created programming around it. It was a general branding statement. We, we wanted people to realize that we had bigger stars. We wanted people to believe we had bigger stars. <laughs> yeah, yeah. We wanted to market that fact that we had bigger stars, even though we really didn't. We wanted to make people think we did. So we told them. And, you know, it, you tell people something long enough, they start to believe it. Yeah. Um, but I, I don't think that we actually created matches and situations around a branding campaign. If you could go back to the original statement about uh, uh, the AEW, WWE thing, would you take out the term cosplay? Because no. I think, because, I no. mean, did you see Chris Jericho's tweet? He was real pissed that you you said cosplay. It, it was uh, pejorative. I think that's the word I'm why, looking why, for. What? No, it, it is what it is. It is what it is. Look, have you ever been to a Comic-Con? Yeah, one? sure. Yeah, yeah, yeah. San Diego, yeah. New York, yeah. Have you ever seen the people that and they spend a fortune on these, you know, these outfits and they're pretending to be or dressing up like their favorite, you know, Spock. All right. And they walk around. People actually ask them for their autographs. Mm -hmm. Pictures. Pictures. Mm -hmm. And some of those people actually start to believe they were in the original series. Right. <laughs> yeah. it, it's a little weird. Mm -hmm. And that was an example of my. Muskegee mud hens analysis. You know, you can pretend all you want, and it's, it's not the same as being there. And the constant, constant out of, and this, you know, before, and look, the move that WWE made by going an extra half an hour against Dynamite, that was an aggressive move. That was an offensive move. It wasn't a defensive move, it was an offensive move. And I loved that Tony countered. I was fully supportive of that. The part that gets me is when they undermine themselves and their own credibility by trying to do the Muskegee mud hen batting average analysis. It's just stupid. And people see through it. I'm all for them competing. And my, my response, my, my cosplay comment, and I'm sorry, I'd upset Je uh, uh, Chris, cause I like Chris a lot. I have a ton of respect for Chris and enjoy being around him and working with him. But dude, you know, you know, you've been there, you know better. And and I have to believe that there are people in Tony's organization, AEW right now, that sure they're going to go along with it. Just like people went along with some of the things that I did, you know, early on with Nitro, but they were like, oh, God, I wish you would stop. stop. <laughs> well, 
Besides the, uh, besides the, obviously the classic that'll put butts in seats line that had everybody switch over and Mick Foley won the title and everything. I think that's been well, uh, discussed. Were there any specific, uh, competitive moves that you made on Nitro? Cause you made a lot of them that you pretty quickly realized was a mistake and you were like, ah, let's not, let's not do that again. No, no. But again, and here's the difference. And again, some of the you know negative feedback I got was like, how could you, you know, even Tony Khan said, oh, it's laughable. Eric you came down from the ceiling on a motorcycle wearing a <laughs> Yeah, you did. <laughs> to a fight. Yeah, I did that. But guess what, Tony? Here's the difference. I didn't have some little nerd with a graph in a, in a, <laughs> in a, in a computer or excuse me, in a calculator trying to convert data and statistics and trying to paint a picture that I was actually competing. I was actually competing. Mm -hmm. Of course I did those things. Of course I, and going back to what we talked about earlier, I was already the heel. WCW was already the heel. Nobody wanted us to succeed. Nobody wanted us to succeed. Well, guess what? You put me in a corner like that. I'm going to fight my way out. And that's exactly what I did. Tony's not in that situation. And AEW's not in that situation. But so many other talents are doing the same thing. You know, and when we get to my podcast, and again, I'm not using you as a teaser here. No, it's fine. I haven't thought through exactly what I'm going to say yet. And although I very rarely prep in detail for a show, I'll go back and watch a show if I'm doing a recap of an event or a Nitro or pay-per-view. Of course, I go back and I watch it and I take notes and all that. But I don't have a, I don't have a script. I don't have notes written down. I just familiarize myself with it. With what I'm about to do, but I know this weekend I'm going to re be recording a podcast and it's going to be an ask Eric Anakin podcast. So I'm going to get overwhelmed with this kind of stuff. And I'm going to talk about, I'm not even going to name the names, some of the talent that have made some of the most ridiculous statements that have undermined not only themselves, but the product and, and, and shot themselves in the foot for no reason. There's a time and a place for it. But if you're not willing to get in the ring and put on the gloves and stand toe-to-toe -to -toe and actually fight to see who wins, don't sit outside in the audience or better yet or worse yet outside of the venue where it's safe and you don't really have to compare or compete and make those types of comments because you'll lose credibility in the long run. Sure, you've got some internet, you know, people that are going to do anything you say, they're going to grab at you just like some people do for me. I get that. But Oh, it's like death by a thousand cuts. And it's, it's, I, that's what I react to. I don't want them to fail. Mm -hmm. Believe it or not. doesn't come off that way, I guess, <laughs> but I don't want them. I want them, And I don't think they're going to fail, by the way. I think they're going to be successful. I just want them to be more successful. If you look at the numbers, here's, here's what doesn't lie. Numbers, real, real numbers, mm -hmm. not twisting and turning and, you know, doing the Muskegee Munhead, you know, data dance. I'm talking about real numbers. AEW right now has about half of the viewing audience of WWE. You don't have to be, you know, an, a, 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 a data analyst to figure that out. It's right there in front of you. Their highest rated show, WWE's highest rated show, WWE's second highest rated show. They're about half, sometimes 60% during Monday Night Football. That's it. You want to compare money? WWE made more money yesterday than AEW is going to make all year from their license fee, which is the majority of their revenue from TBS. They made more money yesterday. <laughs> so you can't compare the two companies financially. You can't compare the two companies in terms of real honest viewership, right? Now you can dig and dive and do the Muskegee mud hen analysis. If you want to, to try to paint the picture that it's more competitive than it really is, but none of that data really matters. 
Do you think a media buyer is going to sit down and go, oh, I don't know, man, CM Punk against somebody else had a slightly higher demo than WWE? You're not doing that. That's not how media is purchased. That's not how revenue is generated in the television industry. But that's the dialogue, right? That's the narrative that's being used to try to paint a picture that isn't real. You guys were uh, at the height of the Monday Night Wars. You guys were planting signs in the crowd at Nitro, right? We may have on occasions, but generally those that that shit took on a life of its own. Right, right. Well, I'm not saying we didn't because sure. I'm sure that we probably did for creative purposes. Um, occasionally, but it would have been very, very occasionally. There wasn't like a sign maker guy right. sitting backstage <laughs> cranking out signs. That <laughs> I do feel though like if 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 this were like Monday Night Wars territory where it was like two companies fighting, like just going for each other's throats every single week. I feel like uh, I feel like Eric, you would you would be the one who brought Twitter bots into the war. Like you would figure out how to use technology and create a Twitter bot army for Nitro. I guess I know too much about Twitter bots, so I kind of now. If had I not known, you know, anything about Twitter bots, if somebody would have said, "Here, I know, I've got a way that you can dominate," you know, social media on, on Twitter. Uh, with this technology, I, you're right. I would have bought into it, <laughs> and, and I probably would have been. I probably would have been angry with myself afterwards because it's not real. Right, right, bullshit. Right, I, I tend to like real shit, not <laughs> fake shit. Mm-hmm. So I would have probably fired whoever it was that convinced me to do it. <laughs> you, you would have done it, and then you would have fired the guy. Yeah, I love yeah. that you're seeing the whole life cycle through uh, already. Um, well, look, uh, of course, uh, 83 weeks is available uh, over at adfreeshows.com. I listen all the time. I love it. As I said before, uh, I love that you're you're an active part of the wrestling conversation because that wasn't the case for a long time. So it's super cool. When, you, when this, something like this happens, and I'm sure this has happened a lot on your podcast too because this isn't the first time that, you know, you've, you've made controversial statements and the internet's gone nuts. Um, do you start to get that hunger for performing again like do you start to to feel because there there is an intoxicating thing about having everybody whether they're for or against you just having people react is an intoxicating thing and when it happens on the internet does it kind of make you go this would be fun to get in the ring and have a bunch of people booing me again you know weeks ago in in, a, in what i thought was a very complimentary comment that I made on social media and, and on my podcast um, when AEW was when they had their show at Arthur Ashe I think the comment I made I'm paraphrasing myself here because I don't remember exactly but was something to the effect of you know I've got a massive dose of very healthy envy for AEW for Tony for everybody associated with AEW because I know that feeling I know the excitement and it is to your point, an intoxicating effect that you can't get anywhere else. It's impossible. I'm going to see the Rolling Stones two days from now. The Rolling Stones aren't touring because they need the money. (laughs) Rolling Stones are touring because they can't get that fix anywhere else. They have to tour. And I'm that way. I mean, in terms of performing, I still have that. So, yes, part of me loves performing. I do. There's no question about that. But there's another part of me that knows that that window's way behind me. You know, I'm – no, 
I, I don't, I'm not trying to, nor do I, would I, I mean, I love my life the way it is right now. I wouldn't trade my life or my lifestyle for anything. 20 years ago, absolutely. This kind of reaction would have probably made me change course, you know, in terms of my interest in getting involved in the business again. But like, like I said, it's in my rearview mirror, man. I enjoy what I do right now. I love doing the podcast. If it creates controversy in this, the part that I, I mean, I get it. I, I don't want to be stupid about this. I understand why people reacted passionately the way they did both in support of my opinion and, and as opposed to it as well. Um, but it doesn't make me wish or desire or fantasize about getting back in the business again. Well, uh, then everybody better go go get your podcast. You know that's where you're going to get your uh, Eric Bischoff fill. So go and get it. And uh, I appreciate it, man. Any anytime uh, you want to come on here, please say the word. Sam, I, I very much appreciate it, and uh, I look forward to uh, to you getting the response that you're going to get. <laughs> oh yeah. <laughs> Thank you, man. All right. Be well. Thanks for listening. Follow at NotSam on Twitter, Instagram, Facebook, and YouTube. Rate, review, and subscribe. This has been Not Sam Wrestling.